Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your son, Jesus. And we're mindful of our, we're reminded even right now of our great need for him. As I'm about to preach, Lord, and to break your word over the souls of people who are in desperate need of you. Many of us are struggling right now with um, finding you glorious and sufficient and uh, struggling in believing and loving our neighbor. Uh, Father, I would, um, I know that the, that the crises through which many of our people are going are, are great and overwhelming and uh, the, the waves are so high that they are having difficulty even seeing you. And Lord, I pray that this word would encourage those who are weak-kneed and faint-hearted, struggling to believe. I pray that it would encourage those that you are doing a work in, Father, that there are many here that are uh, walking with uh, great faith and encouragement and joy, and I thank you for that, Father. We give you the credit for that. I, I pray that, that for those, they may be further encouraged. And uh, even for the uh, non-Christian, Father, I pray that you would, um, for your own glory... And through the power of your spirit that you would bring about truth that is encouraging, convicting, leading uh, to the greater realities of life which are found in you. The greater joys of life which are found in you. And so, Father, would you uh, move through these words. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, so, uh, to what degree of spiritual vitality that you feel right now? In other words, to what degree are you encouraged in the things of God? Or or let me ask it the other way, to what degree are you discouraged in the things of God? I mean, many of us, we start in the faith. For the Christian, you start in the faith. There's a degree of excitement and thrill and joy. And and then it can tend to, through time and trials, it can tend to flatline a little. And, and, And you lose a little bit of the zeal that you have for the faith, that your love for God begins to wane. Your, um, <clears throat> you know, the physical realities of life kind of eclipse the spiritual truths that you believe. Um, you, you have a, a word, you know, you have a love for your brother in word only, not necessarily in deed. You've grown in being able to excuse your sins and yet accuse others very clearly of their sins. Or, or you can justify um, yourself, but, but find easy conviction for them. Perhaps you feel like God's distant or removed from you. He's angry. You're, you're kind of burdened by sin. Um, perhaps you're feeling a degree of, of, you know, you don't have many thoughts of heaven. I mean, your view of Christ is dimming. I mean, many of us, you know, John Wesley, of course, the great itinerant preacher, um, England preached in America, said these words. He says, where's the joy that I knew when I first saw the Lord? I mean, this speaks to many of us. I mean, we really wonder what happened to the initial flame. And um, my hope for you today is that Psalm 85 is going to be an answer for you. Psalm 85 is really a prayer asking God to revive our hearts. Psalm 85 is, is simply asking God to restore us to, to enjoying God again, to finding Him sufficient and exciting in all things. Psalm 85 is trying to wake up a spiritually languishing people. And so if you turn with me there, the psalmist is going to, we're going to draw the context out 
of this psalm from its contents, and then the psalmist leads us in pursuing this type of, of revival. Uh, psalm 85.1, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you are favorable to, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God, the Lord, will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Okay, sometimes I read these the first time and I have no idea what they're saying. And so, you know, if you're confused right now, uh, hopefully after a good two hours, we can maybe get through the first few verses. Um, Just to set the context for you, um, because you notice he starts out with Thanksgiving and then he moves right to a prayer. And he moves, and the prayer kind of gives us the context that these were a people languishing. They were struggling. They felt as if God was angry at them. And they're drawing back. They feel as if they have no favor from God. Yes, they've known God. Yes, they're the people of God. But God just seems distant and far removed. And the faith seems, God seems very unreal. And the faith was very, very distant. Most likely, what the psalm is coming out of is when the children of Israel had been returned to the land that God had given them. After the exile, remember, the exile is when God, because of the sin of the people, brought about punishment and discipline, and he took the country to the east and and deported them. They came, conquered Israel, brought the people back to Babylon. And they lived there for 70 years under God's punishment. And yet, God, in mercy and power, in 538 B.C., he, he uses a servant named Cyrus. He's a Persian king, absolute pagan, but God uses him, raises him up, and Cyrus determines then that I'm just going to repatriate the people back to Israel. It's huge. I mean, for a conquering king to just say, no, we're going to send them all back. And send them back with money, by the way, to build a temple. And so God is moving them back. And you can imagine when after the exile, they were filled with joy. The first thing they did was they laid the foundations of temple. And then they built the temple. And here's the kind of joy they had. In Psalm 126, they said, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, kind of the same language we just read in verse 1, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. So you can imagine the joy that they had when they were brought back to the land. But now we're years later. We're a number of years later, and and that initial joy has faded, and it's gone. And they're back to just the hardness of life. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 1, before he builds the walls, he gives a little bit of of a picture of what Israel was like at the time. 
He says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, they are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So you see a people now, the people for which the psalmist is writing, the walls are down, the enemies are threatening, times are lean, finances are tough. It's hard for them. Their spirituality was languishing, questioning the character of God, questioning the love for God. If you read Nehemiah, they weren't loving each other very well either. And so it was clearly a time the psalmist said, we need revival. We need to be made alive again. We need to have the Spirit of God move on us again. I mean, they saw that. And out of that situation came this psalm. Now, let me just stop there because I, I want to see where we are in that. You know, when we speak about the need of revival, and I'm going to try to give a different definition of revival to perhaps what some of you have heard before, but, but do you think we're in this time? I mean, do you think we're in a time where we need to be revived? We need to be restored. Now, I'm not a guy that is, the sky's fallen. I'm not that type of guy, unless I'm in physical pain. And then the sky's crashing down, and it's a terrible scene. But generally, I'm not a pessimistic guy. Uh, But as I look at the landscape of life, I definitely am not encouraged. Now, I want you to know, I'm not taking a shot at the culture. This has nothing to do with the culture, really. I mean, we tend to look at our problems and say, well, it's the liberal politics, or it's those conservative Christians, or it's incivility in our culture, or it's greed in the marketplace, or it's whatever group is in the White House at the time. I don't think he's speaking about that. I think he's speaking about the need for revival as the church. He's speaking about us. Do we, we need to be kind of honest in a self-appraisal over where are we in relationship to a need for revival. I mean, as a church, do you think we have a growing, passionate love for the gospel? Do you think that we have this, this increasing value of the unsurpassable riches of Christ? Do you think that we have a, a deep love for those outside the faith that moves us to be willing to sacrifice for them? Do we have a deep love for each other? And is that evidenced in kind of developing new friendships with people that come in this church? I mean, are we overwhelmed with the sin in our life, pleading for the grace that is ours in the gospel? I mean, would that be us? Are you guys finding yourselves on Sunday morning excited to meet and enjoy God? You know, A.W. Tozer, a a pastor, probably in the mid-20th century, he wrote these words. He said, it is difficult to get Christians to attend any meeting where God is the only center of attention. You know, we want to jack up the service, you know, kind of pump it up a little bit so that people will find God more exciting. I did that for my children. But let 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 me tell you, that's not just from inside the house of God. So this is a quote from Alan Wolf, who wrote the book Transforming American Religion, self described agnostic, teaches at Boston University. And here's what he wrote, and it's a little bit of a long quote, so bear with me. Dear fellow secular Americans, I know that you're concerned about the religious right. By the way, I think he speaks a little general in terms of many of us would not consider ourselves part of the religious right. But he says, I know that you're concerned about the religious right and their influence in America. You're worried that they possess too much power and that if they are successful, they will make America into some kind of neo-theocratic state in which religious beliefs stymie the advance of personal moral freedoms in areas such as abortion, 
religious pluralism, the normalization of homosexuality in the culture. Now, but fear not, for on the basis of my studies, I've found that while evangelicals claim to believe in absolute truth and an authoritative Bible which governs all of life, they don't live like they say they believe. They say they believe the Bible is the word of God, but somehow strange that the Bible always says what satisfies their personal psychological and emotional needs. They say they worship an awesome God, but their deity is not one to be feared because he is non-judgmental, always quick to point out our good qualities, and he will take whatever, we, whatever he can get in terms of our commitment to him. And here's how he concludes. In every respect of the religious life, American faith has met American culture, and American culture has triumphed. Whether or not the faithful ever were a people apart, they are so no longer. Talk of hell, damnation, and even sin has been replaced by a non-judgmental language of understanding and empathy. Far from living in a world elsewhere, the faithful in the United States are remarkably like everyone else. So is there a need for revival? Well, look at your own soul. Do you think you need to be revived? I mean, when you consider your own love for Christ, is it growing? Is it thriving? And if it is, thank God for that. But for those that it's not, is it time that you need to be revived? Does God need to move upon you again to revive your soul? Charles Spurgeon, that great um, British pastor in London in the 19th century, he preached this text or out of um, Psalm 85, 6 on August 14 of 1887. And he says, this psalm is for those who are apathetic, languishing. You feel useless. Your prayers aren't answered. But I'd add to it. Those who have lost the goodness of God. Those of us who have compromised with sin. We've made it a friend. Those of us who have accommodated hypocrisy in our lives. That we live this way, we speak this way, and we've become okay with it. I mean, do you need to be revived? Really, the first part of the sermon isn't even explaining the text other than trying to present a case for you to ask yourself, do I need for God to move in me in a way that moves me in greater love for him. Because if you don't feel that need, then you probably need to wake up in some measure. But if you do feel that need, then the psalm is going to answer it. So look with me what the psalmist does. He's not not grumbling about the culture. He's groaning for God. Look in the first three verses. The first thing he does is he turns to the past faithfulness of God. He says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. In other words, he's going right to God's move of grace, of, of, re, of bringing a people back to the land. So, you know, the first time they took the land, it was by conquest, weapons, and weaponry. This time, he brings them back without any weapons. What a picture of the gospel. He brings them back to the land. Now, if, if they were removed from the land due to their sin and due to God's wrath, then bringing them back to the land would mean that they've been forgiven and God's wrath has been removed. In other words, God is showing his commitment to restore a people to himself, that he is faithful to his people, that he's acted in the past with mercy and grace for them. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He knows in difficult times, the first thing I need to do for my soul to be revived is I need to go back and remind myself how faithful God has been to us. Now, his look back into the past is not like pining over past glories. Like, we tend to do this. 
probably across the board, but I know in, in North America, we, we fall into this nostalgia of how the 50s had it all. Uh, and, and nostalgia, as one author said, it's an optical illusion. They had their own issues, probably more issues than we have. And, and so the psalmist isn't going back to the way, oh, it was so great back then. He's going back and saying, this is what God has done. This is the goodness of God to us. And, and what we're supposed to do is see the faithfulness of God, and that engenders faith to believe that he's going to give us strength to move forward. In fact, one old Puritan scholar said, he said that the prayers for revival are founded upon his past mercies. He cannot, now this is God, God cannot mean to deliver by halves. The mercies received are incomplete. And his work must be perfect. He cannot partially reconcile. Here's his point. As you look back and you see the mercies of God, the beginning of God moving with mercy, he has to complete it. He has to bring it to full measure. So if God's going to start something, he's going to complete it. And so it gives us confidence that even though you may be languishing now, that he's going to bring, as you seek him, he's going to bring mercies because he's faithful. So Christian... For the Christian here, revival begins by us looking back at what God has done in our lives. That's why I said last week, you ought to be historians of God's grace in your life. You ought to know what God has done. You ought to know, boy, God has done these things in my life. How he saved me from myself. How he saved me from my sin. Uh, That ought to be on your mind. Uh, Not just, I would also be thanking him for the mercies that he gives us in family and health and success. Those are great blessings. But far greater is his mercy to us with forgiveness. I mean, when God gave you forgiveness in Christ, he took you as a child of wrath and made you a child of God. He took you from being far away and, being, and bringing you near. He took you as, a, as someone who was an enemy of God to now being a friend of God. He, he took you who were dead and made you alive. I mean, just stop for a minute and consider the nature of God's glory in creating you, sustaining you, loving you, and yet all that we've turned against him. And he's forgiven you of that in Christ. I mean, that ought to engender, that ought to be like the, the ground zero of our attention. I mean, we're just focused on what God has done. You know, John Newton was the great author of... Um, Amazing Grace and many other hymns. He was a pastor. He's, um, of course, you know him as the slave trader redeemed um, by writing Amazing Grace and back in the 18th century. But he could never get away from his redemption. It, it, it just, every year, as a matter of practice, on March 21, he would celebrate God's deliverance of his soul. Such that on his 80th birthday in his journal, here's what he writes. 80 years old had just about lost all of his eyesight. He said, on this day, 57 years ago, God acted to save this African blasphemer. He he, he knew how significant it was. Now, I'm not worried about you knowing the date of conversion. I don't even know the date of my conversion. But I want you to know the fruit of your conversion. You know, that God has done a work. That God has saved me. And, And that is what you go back to and back to. So when we're languishing in the faith, when we're feeling as if God is distant, while we're accommodating ourselves to sin, 
while we're embracing a degree of hypocrisy, we're accepting the fact that God seems distant, we want to go back and think, God, this is what you've done for me. This is why we tell you, preach the gospel to yourselves every day. The gospel isn't just saving you from... The gospel is not just saving you on a day for the day, but it's saving you every day. Every day, it's fuel to walk in holiness. It's fuel to have your soul revive to think through. You know, it was the regathering of the gospel that initiated the first great awakening in this country in the 18th century. You know, it was precipitated, or at least in part, by Jonathan Edwards preaching on Romans 4-5 about a gospel of grace. No more moralism, no more legalism, no more licentiousness. God has given us a gospel of his mercy to save us. And boy, that started a fire that burned quite well in New England. So, so that's the first thing I want you to think about. And, and, and the reason that you can look back at this is that God is faithful to his covenant. I mean, he's done something back then. And you say, but he's not doing anything now, Tom. I'm saying, but he's faithful. God cannot go against a covenant that he has made with us in the blood of Christ. Remember in Genesis 22, if God crosses his covenant, then he must be ripped asunder as the animals. He will keep his covenant we can go back in faith and hope and joy, trusting him. So that's the first thing. I want you to be historians. I want you to go back. I want you to make much of the gospel in your life. But then secondly, look in 4, 5, 6, and 7, because here he begins to pray. The psalmist goes back to see the mercy of God. His faith is emboldened, and he says, I'm going to pray now urgently, diligently. He says, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. In other words, the psalmist is just asking God, return to me, turn God back to me and put away your indignation. He obviously is feeling burdened by the weight of his sin. He's slipped back into sin. He's feeling guilty as if God's angry at him, as God may be angry with him forever. And he's just saying, return to me. Grant me that sense of joy from forgiveness. Grant me that peace that I have in a reconciled relationship. He's asking God. This is what you can be asking God. You who may be under the burden of sin. You who may be languishing. God, restore to me the joy that ought to be mine as I understand your forgiveness in my life. This is what we're called to pray. That You know how you feel. You get into some spiritual lethargy and you begin to feel God's distance, and the sins begin to pile up. You don't want to run to him, but of course last week you know that you can now, right? In Psalm 40, you run to him with all your sin. Just carry it all to him and just dump it there. So we don't want to run from God and sin. We want to run to God. But the tendency is we run away from God. And he's saying, no, 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 just ask him, return to me. But he does more than that. Look at verse 6. He says, will you not revive us again? That word revive means to literally breathe in us. God, give us new life. You may be dead. You may be languishing. But God, would you breathe in me? Would you give me life? Would you awaken me to the Spirit? Would you cause me to see the riches of Christ? Would you let me see value in your word? Would you let me hate sin? Would you let me love my brethren? I mean, we're asking to be made alive. It is the plea of the desperate. Folks, if you're comfortable in your position right now. This is not the prayer for you. It isn't. But if you're hungry, if you're languishing and you want this, ask him to revive you. But in praying for revival, let me remind you of two things. Number one, this is not a prayer that we are praying for the lost. 
This isn't a prayer for the unregenerate. This isn't a situation where, you know, we're going to set up a tent and call the unbelievers and ask God to revive them. This is praying for the people of God. He says this, when he says in verse 4, he says, um, it's not 4, it's in 6, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. This is a prayer for the people of God. You know, we're praying for ourselves here. I mean, we're praying for me. I mean, pray for the pastors. Pray for the leadership of this church. We often struggle with trying to serve well, and is it having an impact? These men are laboring for you. They're praying for you. They're diligently trying to direct the affairs of the church. And oftentimes, little impact, little feedback, they're wondering, is it making any difference? You want to pray that God would revive them in the work that he's given them. You want to be praying for me. That sometimes when there are few conversions, it's discouraging. Does it matter? Is the word having an impact? Will the word really gather a people? Does Tom really believe it? Pray for him. Pray for me that my soul be revived to, yes, of course God will gather people. He's done it through the thousands of years, and he will continue to do it. You want to pray for yourselves as you're perhaps struggling with apathy. You're struggling with laziness and spiritual things. You're focused on physical realities, blind to the eternal realities that you're going to be facing before you know it. You want to be praying for that. But not just, not just praying for ourselves. We want to be praying to God for this revival. Revival cannot be engineered by men. You can send tents up all day long. It will not bring a revival. Because you have a tent doesn't mean you're going to have a revival. A revival is a work of God upon the people of God. God initiates revival. We're not purely passive, but we're surely not primary in this work. God has to do the work. We are appealing to God. Those of you who are languishing, we're appealing to God. God, would you grant life to us? You know, Charles Finney was a revivalist a couple centuries ago, and um, many of you know his name. You will surely know many of the practices that he helped establish in the evangelical, the Christian church. And I thought Tim Keller gave a good um, analysis on Charles Finney. Let me just read to you. He says, Uh, How do seasons of revival come? One set of answers comes from Charles Finney, who turned revivals into a science. Finney insisted that any group could have a revival, any time, any place, as long as they apply the right models in the right way. He says, under Finney's influence, revivalism undermined the more traditional way of doing Christian formation. The traditional way of Christian growth was gradual, whole family catechisms, church-centric, Revivalism, under Finney, however, shifted the emphasis to seasons of crises. Preaching became less oriented to long-term teaching and more directed to stirring up of the affections of the heart towards a decision. Not surprisingly, these emphases demoted the importance of the church in general and of careful sound doctrine and put all the weight on an individual's personal subjective experience. And this is one of the reasons, though not the only, that we have the highly individualistic, consumeristic evangelism of today. I mean, that is gold. That is where we are. That's so much of my preaching is trying to pull back from that, that we want to seek God alone. I want to encourage you. I mean, uh, Robert Murray McShane was a great Scottish preacher back in the 19th century. He says, just take your emptiness to his fullness. That's all we're asking. And Spurgeon, when he preached this prayer, the first line in his sermon was this. He said, 
if you pray this prayer, it would be better than my preaching from it. And it would save us about 45 minutes, too. So just pray the prayer is what he's saying. Go to him, pray that God revive our souls. So two things. We are first looking back at past mercies. God, you are faithful. You are good to me. You've started to work. But we're also going to be diligently praying, praying for revival. God, grant to us. Pray for one another. Pray for us. Pray for your leadership. And then last, we wait patiently. Look with me at verse 8. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So now the psalmist is kind of standing in the role of the prophet. And he's saying, let me hear what you will speak. Kind of like Haggai, the prophet before. He stands out there and he says, okay, God, I have prayed faithfully. Now I'm waiting patiently for you. Let me hear what you will speak. And then God speaks to him. And what God says to him in these next number of verses is giving us the fruit of what revival looks like. Here's what it's going to look like. If you pray this prayer and you believe this, here's what's going to happen. First, it says God will speak peace to you, to his saints. That God, and you know, when God speaks, things are created. So God's going to speak peace. God is going to move with affecting peace in our relationship. That God's going to remove the the enmity. He's going to bring forgiveness. He's going to bring reconciliation. That distance you may feel with God is going to be evaporating because God is going to be bringing about peace with us. That's the promise that God has made. Now, Clearly, this prayer has been answered in Christ. For the New Testament Christian, as we look at this, we are thankful that the Prince of Peace has come to bring peace, that in Christ himself, we find peace with God. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is peace with God. In fact, in Ephesians 2.14, Paul says Jesus is our peace. So the peace that we have with God now is in and through Christ. Completely. Now, do you feel this peace? I mean, do you sense a peace with God? Do you feel that all of his burden and all of his anger is displaced from you? Or do you still feel a degree of God's resentment or frustration or distance from you? How, how do you understand this? Do you understand that you've been washed clean and forgiven in Christ? Do you understand that you've been adopted? That God forgave you to adopt you? You know, J.R. Packer is a current theologian. He says you can know everything about a person's theology by understanding how they view the fatherhood of God. Do you feel as if he's a father? You've been reconciled and you're at peace with him now. That's the fruit of revival. As you pray for revival you will have a peace that surpasses understanding that will guard your heart and mind. You will feel feel safe with God. You will feel close to God. You will feel that he's not always looking at the mistakes you make. All of them have been washed away. I mean, that's a tremendous feeling to know that I am right with God. I am yet a sinner, but a saint because of Christ. But not just peace comes to us. A fruit of revival is obedience. Look at the back half of verse 8. He says, but let them not turn back to folly. You know, part of the mark of revival is that we want to be obedient. We want to walk in holiness. We don't want to turn to folly. Three times in the passage, we're asking God, turn to us, turn to us, turn to us. And then the psalmist says, but don't turn away from God. That's really what sin is, is it not? It's a turning away from God. Instead of me finding all my ultimate good in God, I'm going to find my good in people and women and, and food and comfort and success and money and so forth. It's turning away from God, turning away from the giver of life, and now I'm going to try to give myself life. That's what sin is. And it kills revival. 
It doesn't have to be blatant sin. It can be excess. It can be affluence. It can be indifference. It can be unforgiveness. It can be all these things. In fact, one of the marks of revival is when we begin to go after sin, when we don't like sin anymore. We don't want to pacify it. We want to crucify it. I mean, we don't want it anymore because we see what it, what it did to our Lord. So a mark of revival is your movement towards greater holiness. Now, again, as New Testament Christians, we're excited on this issue, and here's why. That with the coming of Jesus Christ, who bears our sins, who suffers our shame, who dies our death, who's raised to the right hand, who sends the Spirit of God, now, for the New Testament Christian, the Spirit of God dwells within us to lead and guide and direct us. And the Spirit of God gives us grace so that we can walk now in holiness. We want to do it, and we can do it through the power of God's Spirit. Now, the the presence of God's Spirit isn't evidenced in your perfection. It's evidenced in your pursuit of holiness. So I said a few weeks ago, sometimes the greatest conviction to me that I am saved is in my sin. Because when I'm in my sin, I'm I'm not blame shifting. I'm not trying to say, well, if they would have done this different. I'm not trying to excuse make. I I just realize, you know what? I am. I sinned. But by God's grace, I've been forgiven. And I find unbelievable hope in the gospel. This is how the gospel perpetuates greater and greater holiness throughout life. It's not something you just believe in, leave it in the locker, and then go on with the Christian life. Every day as I'm confronted with sin, I sit there and think, no, but I have the gospel. I've been washed clean. I've been reconciled to God encourages me to walk in greater holiness. But but then thirdly, the third mark of revival is just joy in God. Notice what he says in 6. He says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Notice that that it's a rejoicing in God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm going to try to hit it next week in Psalm 16. But there is to be a joy in God, not just in what God does, but what God is, who God is. Your joy, your satisfaction is increased in God himself. There's a pleasure in God. You know, so Jonathan Edwards, I shared this with you before, that uh, theologian in New England in the uh, 18th century, he, he said knowing about God and knowing God or, or, or loving the things about God and loving God are different. And here's how they're different. It'd be different like this, that I can know about honey, honey. We can know that it's sweet and the consistency of it and what it works with, what food you can put it on. But it's one thing to know about honey. It's another thing to taste honey. When you taste honey, its sweetness is so lovely. It's altogether different. Revival moves you from knowing about God to enjoying God, to loving God, to finding him satisfying. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said in the time of revival, he says a true sense, this is revival, a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God. One of the effects of this encounter with God, it doesn't merely rationally believe that God's glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There's more than the knowledge of it. There's the enjoyment of it. We need this. Many of you know a lot of things about God. But are you dining on him? I mean, do you find him lovely? Is he sweet to behold? This is what we're praying for. God, let us sense you like tasting honey. And and then the last mark of revival 
is a longing for heaven. And, and I see this in really in 10 and 11. These are difficult verses actually to translate and to understand. But, but there's a longing for heaven. For the Christian, when you think about heaven, try not to think of golf courses and seaside resorts and family reunions. I, I don't, I'm not saying they won't be there. Um, I don't, if you're looking for that when you get there, it's going to shock me. I'll just say that to you. But, but don't think of heaven as that. I want you to think of heaven as this glorious God that you're going to meet face-to-face, creator of the entire universe, and the Son who has shed his blood for you to see him. When you think of heaven, we're thinking of the greatness of God. L- look, because the, the mark of revival in 10 and 11 is trying to get us to look forward to that day. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. You kind of see this this metaphor of perfect faithfulness, righteousness, glory. We don't see that right now, but I think think that's heaven. It's a picture of what we're going to see. Can you not imagine? We want to see golf courses, and yet don't we really want to see perfect justice? Don't we want to see absolute holiness? Don't we want to experience perfect joy as opposed to just the trappings of this life amped up for a heaven level? I mean, that's what the psalmist is saying, that that the mark of revival, when your soul begins to be stirred, you're wanting to be there. You're wanting to see him. You're wanting to be with him. The one who has given you life and has sustained you every breath along the way and has sent a son to die for you. I mean, it's incredible. I don't think we see that, but I think in the cross, we do see at Calvary, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God's righteousness coming down, bearing proper justice on the sins of men that are now on Christ. And it creates peace, both for us with God and us with each other. Righteousness and peace in Christ. So while we don't see that now, we can long for heaven because we see Christ has inaugurated this kingdom. So there's a lot here. I know that. I've gone on for a little bit, but, but think this way with me. If your spirit and your soul feels lethargic and God's distant and you're having trouble sensing the beauty and the glory of God, would you, with me, consider the work that he's begun in your life? Think past on his mercies, how he has drawn you to himself. Why he drew you to himself should boggle your mind, and it should just cause you to wonder. And then secondly, that you would pray with me, that we would ask God, just simply, restore us and revive us. And that you would also begin to wait patiently with me. The prayer prayed in faith is always prayed patiently. And let's do that now. And uh, Keith is going to close us in a few minutes. But let me just initiate this prayer time. And what we want to do is we want to ask God for these things. We have not because we ask not, James tells us. So we're going to ask him. And let's ask him not doubting. Let's not be like the surf tossed to and fro. But let's ask in faith. And, uh, and then wait patiently for the fruit of revival to come into this church. And then into this church and spills out into the community around us. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you are faithful to revive a people, to bring a people back to the land, to restore a people, to revive a people. Father, would you do that work among us, 
even now, that you would begin. Just, even just highlight the beauty of the gospel to us. Help us to see the incredible riches of Christ. Pray this in the name of Jesus.